Hey there, good morning. It's 4.30 in the morning, and I want to listen to some Sumerian Origins. Let's see what they've got. Lost City of Timuri. In ancient texts. Um, Till Moon. Never heard of it. The last Sumerian who got it and the Anunnaki, I think we've already covered that. Old immigrant mentioned me. Anunnaki mixed our genes, the answers, and the chromosomes two weeks ago. Oh, those are short. Those are short. Um, Enki's lost diary has been found. The Anunnaki theory they made us exploring the ancient alien influence and its academic legacy. That sounds good. We're taught today by the Darwinians, or, or those who espouse the Darwinian theory, that life evolved from an initial uh, pool of water with molecules in it that were basically inorganic, and that some way, sometime, somehow, those inorganic molecules were swept together into a living entity, something that was somehow alive. Now, we know that's not true now, and it's beginning to shift. The, the teaching is still the same because it takes a while to change the books, but it's becoming acknowledged that life almost had to be delivered to Earth. And the facts are, are uh, incontrovertible that that's going to be the truth. When life first appears at around 4 billion years ago, the solar system itself is only about a half a billion years old, only about 500 million years old. Not really enough time for anything to develop because the Earth was still basically a seething ball of magma and very little land had actually cooled out, very little water would be available for anything to form in. The, the Darwin's warm pool, warm pond couldn't possibly have existed when life first came. Not only did life come suddenly at a time when it, it's just inexplicable that that would happen, it came in not one form, but in two forms. Prokaryotic bacteria, there are two kinds. For a long time it was thought that there was just one, time, one kind, but there are actually two. So you have suddenly, at around four billion years ago, two distinct separate kinds of prokaryotic bacteria appear on Earth as the first life forms. And those life forms were so complex and so complicated, even though they didn't have the nucleus of the eukaryotic bacteria, which came later, much later. Even though they didn't have cell nucleus, they're functioning to this day, because we have them to this day. Their functioning is so complex, so chemically complex, there's no doubt that it couldn't possibly have developed here. It had to have been delivered here, and it had to be delivered whole and intact, and it had to come in about four billion years ago. So, given those facts right out of the box, there is no um, Darwinian development at the first stage of life, as we understand it. Then, as you move along through the history,
history. Darwin postulated that from that beginning, however that beginning occurred, and he, he was no more clear on it than we were until just recently, um, however that beginning occurred, it had to develop very slowly but very regularly toward more and more complex beings, more creatures, however you care to term that. And as that slow gradual progression developed, ever more sophistication was put into the system by what he called natural selection, which is little traits that would somehow help a, a creature uh, improve its odds of reproducing itself would make for more and more and more sophisticated um, beings and creatures. And that's how we supposedly evolved, the word Darwin didn't use, but which became popular later, we evolved from those bacteria through millions and millions and millions of slight improvements to creatures that were intermediate, the intermediate forms. Now, when Darwin put forth his theory in 1869, he said very clearly, if the intermediate forms that I'm postulating cannot be found, then my theory is wrong. He knew that there was a problem because even in his day, it was clear in the fossil record that there were these huge gaps and then things would just suddenly appear. So he, he said, now that we know to look for them, we should find these intermediate species. We haven't found any really to this point. We do find development within species we do find changes at the macro excuse me at the micro level which is changes in parts darwin himself found the changes in the beaks of the finches darwin's finches um, the shells of the tortoises that he found on the galapagos so he found indications of change at the micro level at the part level and what he postulated what he extrapolated is well if we can see obvious change at the micro level, then we can legitimately assume that change also is going to occur at the macro level, at the whole body level, so that it will be possible for one species to change into, over time, another species entirely. And that was the bedrock of his theory. And again, he said, but if you can't find any transitional species where it's clear that one thing is turning into something else or that thing is turning into something else yet again, there will be a problem. And that's been the result of much more detailed analysis of the fossil record. There are no intermediate species. Now, once scientists began to understand that and realize that what you saw was long periods of life existing in what is called stasis, which means the same, it basically stays the same. In the fossil record, you have these long periods of stasis followed by these periods of catastrophe where everything is just gone, it's wiped out, not everything, but most everything. And then you have these periods of not much happening, and then suddenly the, the niches get filled up again very rapidly, these explosions of life forms. So when science in the, in the 50s and 60s began to see what the reality of the situation was and how far it was from classic Darwinism, which they were already very heavily bought into because that's what they used to maintain Moral, the moral high ground against the, the creationists. 
they knew they had a problem. So um, Stephen Gould and some others came up with a theory called punctuated equilibrium. And what punctuated equilibrium says is that as life develops, there are catastrophes that wipe them out. It's pretty clear from the fossil record that these happen. There's been five major ones and several minor ones. In the major ones, you've had wipeouts of life forms anywhere from 50% to 80%, 90% of all life forms wiped out. The, the first big one, the Permian, wiped out about 90% of the life forms that existed at that time. And yet, after this happens, the ecological niches are filled with new species that are suited to the new environment, whatever it is. So you have the catastrophe that changes everything, changes the atmosphere, and changes the earth. Some things survive because they are adapted or able to adapt themselves to the new environment. But then new species come in that are adapted to whatever that new environment is each time. Now, how, do, how does that happen? How can that happen? How can they rapidly fill in within a few thousand years all of the niches? Can evolution do that? No. There's no record. You would have to see it. The example that I give when I talk is this, that you take a, a kernel of popcorn. Now, under normal circumstances, under the Darwinian scheme of things, if you were to heat that popcorn kernel, it would cuff itself into one piece of popcorn. And that's the Darwinian theory of one thing moving into the next stage up its, its ladder as it goes. But during punctuated equilibrium, the, what they're postulating is that the one kernel of popcorn is somehow going to pop itself into a whole big bucket that you get at the movie. That really is not possible, and yet that's what they're saying. They're saying that the few survivors somehow explode biologically and genetically into all these different species that fill the ecological niches. That really, it can't happen under the Darwinian scenario. So what you have the punctuated equilibrium people saying is that Darwinism works when it can work, but when it can't work, something else works, which is... So how do you turn a, a force of nature on and off like a switch. Can't really happen. What I think and what I say is probably Earth is being terraformed. Earth is being watched over. And when they see that a catastrophe has happened, they wait, they give it time to settle out, they give the new environment time to establish itself. They come in, they take some tests, and they say, okay, these things can live here now, and these things are dumped off here to live and make their way until the next catastrophe. That explains the facts to me, for as silly as it sounds, you know, terraformers, cosmic dump trucks is another term that I use. For as silly as that sounds, it seems to match the facts of what the fossil record tells us better than Darwinism by a long shot. But obviously because it's so far from Darwinism and the establishment is so heavily bought into Darwinism it isn't going to be readily accepted, but I think over time something like that is going to be the real true answer of what's going on here. We're, we're told, as far as human beings go, we're told that we evolved in the Darwinian sense from primates, that we are related 
genetically and biologically and very closely to chimpanzees and somewhat uh, more distantly to gorillas and orangutans and, and gibbons. So, but chimpanzees are our closest genetic and biological relatives. So we are primates. We're all considered primates, all of us, in the primate family, the chimps and the gorillas and, and us. The problem is we, we really don't share any of the basic fundamental primate traits, starting with our bones. Our bones are much lighter and, and less dense than are all the other primate bones. Our muscles are much weaker than any other primate muscles five to ten times as weak. So where our bones are less dense, our muscles are substantially weaker. Right there you have a problem. Our skin is completely different. We have a layer of subcutaneous fat under our skin that no other no primate has. We've got it. Doesn't make sense. We have a hair pattern on our bodies that is substantially different. Not only is the hair reduced but in all other primates, the thickness is on the back, and it's thinner on the front. We have thickness on the front, thinness on the back. What adaptive advantage would that have? As far as our hair itself and our nails, both toenails and fingernails, our hair grows. Our nails grow. They have to be physically trimmed. In all primates, their hair grows to a certain length, their nails grow to a certain length, and they stop. They don't have to bite their nails. So, again, you have a radical difference there. In our heads, you have completely different look about the faces. The prognathous face of all primates except us. The lack of a voice box, the, I mean, the, the, you know, the lack of the ability to, to modulate speech and do speech the way we do. Not that they can't make sounds, they, you know, they make very loud sounds, but they can't break those sounds into small little pieces the way we can to make language. So there's that difference, and just the difference in our faces in general. There's huge difference in our brains, huge difference in our brains. So... You've got all of that, and then on top of it, the, the, the clincher to the argument is this. All primates have 48 chromosomes, and we have 46. Now, how do you lose two whole chromosomes from where you are and produce a being that is so much more skilled and adapted, particularly intellectually, than, than we are? You would think, if we're going to be such a vast improvement over the primates, we would have, oh, 56 or 58 or maybe 60 chromosomes. How do you lose two chromosomes and get better? It really makes no sense. None of it. When you really just sit down and look at the very basics of it, none of it makes sense. We're not primates. We are not primates. To call us primates is, is to insult us and them because there's just no connection. The only thing that's similar is that we have we share 99% the same DNA with the chimps. And that sounds impressive. Wow, that's, we're almost them. How can 1% one, 1 make so much difference? Well, over a 3 billion base pair um, uh, genome, 
you're looking at, what, 30 million different base pairs. That's a lot of room. If you know what you're doing, that's a lot of room to make changes if that's what you're going to do. So there is room there, but it also, it also overlooks the fact that humans share 50% of the genes with mice. So to say that we share 99% with chimps is impressive. To say that we share 50% with mice is even more impressive. It's all the same. All living things share a huge portion of their DNA. Because why? We are all made of the same four base pairs and the same 20 amino acids. Anything that lives is sharing those things. So that's the common root formula for life, not just here, but everywhere. Wherever life is, that's got to be the, the bottom line for all of it. So that there's going to be similarities, I think, wherever you find life. It's going to be based on those same four base pairs and same 20 amino acids. We've been like this for in the range of, I would say, 200,000 years, probably at the outside, 200,000 years. Now, I say that for a number of reasons, our, the primary one of which is that our mitochondrial DNA, as you do research on our mitochondrial DNA, you find that it goes back into the range of 150,000 years. So if you figure that the mitochondrial DNA says 150,000 years, the upper limit, I would think, for our species as it exists would be in the 200,000 range. But it could be that it's no, we're no older than 150,000 years. I would say the true answer lies somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 years based on the mitochondrial DNA, which is, I think, pretty much incontrovertible. Well, if we're, if we're 150 to 200,000 years old, that throws a huge, gigantic wrench into the establishment position that we evolved from creatures that were walking upright approximately 4 million years ago. The early Australopithecines, Lucy, everyone is familiar with her at around 3.2 to 3.5 million years ago, and they're finding new ones all the time. And all they say is to qualify as human is to be upright walking. If you're an upright walking pre, you know, pre-creature, you're called a pre-human. Even though all of those creatures, right through Neanderthal, from, from Lucy at four million years ago, right through the Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Neanderthal to Cro-Magnon, right up to Cro-Magnon, all of those creatures don't look anything like human beings as we are today. They, they are as different from us as primates. In fact, they look like primates. They look like upright walking primates. Up through Neanderthal, back to Lucy and whatever's going to come before her, everything looks like a primate. It has the thick bones, dense bones, which imply, of course, thick, strong, powerful muscles, the attachment points all, all bear witness to very robust muscles. They have the same facial structure as primates do, and from that whole four million year period down to Cro-Magnon, and the Cro-Magnons are only a couple of hundred thousand years um, old as well, um, 
you have this incredible, strong, robust face with prognathous teeth, no chin, the structure of the shoulders and neck looking very primate-like, and seem to have the small primate brain. So, what we're told are our ancestors, that we're evolving from these creatures, I think is absolutely not borne out by the fossil record. The fossil record, to me, makes it clear that what are being put forth as our ancestors are, in fact, the something else, some other kind of upright walking primate, and that human beings, because we don't appear until around 200,000 years ago, what could make something change so radically, literally overnight, in anthropological terms, and be anything remotely associated with Darwinism? It used to be that that the establishment said that we descended from Neanderthals. Even though Neanderthals looked so very, very different from us, it was just that somehow it had to happen because you have Neanderthals and then you have Cro-Magnon. This is when we believe that Cro-Magnons appeared at around 35,000 years ago. Now we know from having found um, overlaps between the two going back 100,000 years or more. And, and right now, the oldest, I think, skull we have of Cro-Magnon is 100, and, I mean, the oldest bones we have of Cro-Magnon is 120,000 years. But you figure if they're in the fossil record at 120,000 years ago, they were there before that. So you, I give them 150,000, maybe 200,000 years. You just haven't found any later examples. But there's clearly a significant overlap between Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. Neanderthal was living down to around 30,000 years ago. Cro-Magnon was living back, living back to around um, maybe 150,000, 200,000 years. A significant overlap. So it's clear we didn't evolve from Neanderthal. Furthermore, we've now been able to sequence out some mitochondrial DNA of Neanderthal, which indicates that there's very little connection very little connection between humans and Neanderthals. <laughs> so, with that being the case, we have to look elsewhere for the progenitor of human beings according to the Darwinian model. What is that? That's Homo erectus. It's got to be. It can't be anything else because Neanderthal supposedly came from Homo erectus. So if you have to lift Neanderthal out of the flow jar, that only leaves humans connected to Homo erectus. And now, that's what everyone is saying, that somehow we evolved from Homo erectus. The problem there is, we have a very complete, very complete skeleton of a Homo erectus um, a young man called the Lake Draconibor. We've got, he is the most complete, in fact, fossil skeleton that we have. So we know a lot about him. And it's clear that he is extremely robust. He is extremely large. He has that same prognathous face, that primate face, and he has a small brain. There's no indication, and, he, and he's really big and powerful. Makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look like a wimp. I mean, so this is this is not something that can be can be said to be a progenitor of human beings, even though really that that is what they're saying. It, the the reality of it is it can't. So humans have to come from somewhere else. 
not part of the natural flow of life on earth. Now, getting people to accept this is, is going to be difficult, but the facts are really clear. We simply did not evolve here. We appear here. And we appear here at around 150 to 200,000 years ago, according to our genes. So I believe, personally, that the writings of the Sumerians 4,000 years ago, as chronicled by Zechariah Sitchin in his books, Fear of Chronicles, I believe that is the most logical and reasonable explanation that there is for how we came to be. We were, they, what those tablets say is that human beings were genetically engineered to be workers and slaves for a super race of beings that came to Earth from another planet, another planet in our solar system, but it doesn't matter where they came from. Somehow, human beings did not develop on Earth. They were put here. Somebody had to put us here for some reason. What the Sumerians say is good enough for me right now, absent any other information, which is that we were created to be their slaves and their servants. There is clear evidence in our genes of tampering. This is not being acknowledged, but it is, every geneticist that works on the problem is aware of it. It's, the problems are fundamental. In the wild, when a creature is born, deformed, or in any way severely damaged, impaired, screwed up, whatever you want to call it, in the wild, that animal does not make it into the gene pool. The parents will abandon it, the parents will kill it and eat it if it's certain animals, but in any event, an animal that is, I mean a creature that is severely not like it should be, is not allowed to grow to maturity and put that problem into the gene pool. This is not to say that there are not defects born among every species. There are. There are going to be sperm egg misconnects and things are going to go wrong. It's a very complex process, the process of reproduction. It's amazing for as complex as it is that it goes as right as it does as many times as it does. But let's focus on the mistakes. There will be mistakes. But in the wild, in the natural course of things, those will not reach maturity and will not put that defect into the gene pool. Everyone acknowledges that. Most things breed true. Something like albinism, for example, being an albino, that doesn't impair you. They just You're white, but it doesn't keep you from living. So you've got albino alligators, albino gorillas, albino, you know. But if, if it's a crippling, damaging disorder, from, from um, you have disorders from mild to serious, but if it's really serious, not going into the gene pool. So in the wild, you don't have that. Humans are the great, great exception to that rule. Humans, the human gene pool in, now contains 4,000 plus genetic disorders, from mild to very serious. We have a couple dozen less fine and bifida, and such as that, that in all things being equal, you will kill you, absolutely kill you, before you can reach maturity. So that being the case, what are they doing in the gene pool? How did those defects get into the gene pool? How do you have these defects occur in Africa, in China, in North America and South America? How do you have that from the very beginning of our species? 
How do you have that? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely genetically impossible. What it tells us is those defects were in the very first human beings because they can get there no other way. Because I mean, she can get through the gene pool no other way. How do they get there in the first place? They have to have been inserted into the gene pool initially by cutting and splicing. It can only be errors, mistakes made in the cutting and splicing process as we were being created. Now, if you make the assumption that we were indeed created to be slaves and servants, then it makes sense that the geneticists who are creating us are not going to really care. They can afford to be sloppy. Does it matter to them if one in a hundred dies? No. Does it matter to them if one in ten dies? No. It doesn't matter. These are slaves. These are less than we are substantially. Why should we worry? Why should we care? And so they leave these defects in, but they also knew, as they were leaving these defects in, that as the genes will spread, one of the problems that has to be dealt with is how would the Anunnaki do this? The, the people that supposedly, according to the Sumerians, created human beings. What would be the process? Well, we have some speculations that we can make because there there is an important issue that needs to be dealt with, and I think this is the best way that it can be dealt with. If indeed we were created genetically from other stock, but according to the Sumerians, some of the creatures of Earth were used, some of the genetics of the creatures of Earth were used to make the new slave, the new servant, better physically adapted to the planet than were the Anunnaki, the people from the other planet who created it. So let's put ourselves for a moment in the, in the position of the Anunnaki. Their problem is this. They want to create a slave and a servant. They want to use the creature, the closest creature they can find to what they need to themselves on Earth. Use that as a base. Take some of its genetics to make the skin better adapted to the amount of sunlight that this planet receives. To make themselves able to breathe the atmosphere perhaps better than they do. So there's some certain aspects they want from the creature of Earth. But they want the slave and the servant to be more like themselves than anything else. They want it to have their own size and musculature, because you wouldn't want your slave to be stronger than you are. They want it to have enough intelligence to function as a slave and a servant, be able to speak to it, to tell it what to do, and to expect that it could go off and do that job and come back and say, I'm finished with that, Master, what do you want me to do now? It, they would have some degree of intellectual autonomy. You would want your slave to have that. So if you're going to do this and, and impart all these things, you're going to want to put most of your genes into the creature, the, the new slave and the new servant. But you're going to put some of the others. So how are you going to do that? Well, you have to find a way to make the two genomes compatible. Even if in a test tube, you've got to make a link-up, you've got to make a, a zygote, you've got to make something that's going to then grow and produce a being, a full-fledged being like you are, or like 
the other creature is. <laughs> we established earlier that all primates have 48 chromosomes. It's safe to assume that whatever creature of Earth they chose to use as the base model had 48 chromosomes. It's also, I think, safe to assume that the Anunnaki themselves had 46. Why? Because human beings, if we are indeed the slave and the servant, we have 46. Those 46 came from somewhere. So how did we get 46 and every other primate has 48? I think this explains it. The Anunnaki had 46. And they had to, wanted to create a being that was going to be more like them by far than like the creature that they were mixing their genes with. So, as the, gene as the Anunnaki scientists or geneticists look at it, they've got a real severe problem in that you have 48 chromosomes on the one hand and 46 chromosomes on the other hand. You've got to find a way to make that work out. You've got to either up the 46 to 48 or you've got to cut the 48 down to 46 so that you can get um, mitosis and get it to work. So, how do you go about that? Can you cut genes off of the 48? I mean, excuse me, cut chromosomes off the 48? No, a chromosome is a lot of genes. If you cut a whole chromosome out of it, that's not the same being anymore. Alright, let's say you want to put a chromosome on your 46. Can you do that? <laughs> no, because again, a chromosome is a lot of genes. If you add one or two, you, then you've got problems there. And remember, you've got to take, you know, you've got to make a mix. How do you solve this problem? It seems insoluble on the surface. It seems absolutely insoluble. There is a way, though, and the Anunnaki seem to have found it. They took the 48, they took the 48, and they took two of them, and they fused them. And if you look at the human genome, you'll see that it looks very much like a primate genome. Except, excuse me, the second and third chromosomes are fused into one. So, what, is that, what does that solve? It gives you all the chromosomal material of the primate, but it's now only taking up the space in, in, the, in the combining process of 46. It is 46 chromosomes with 48 chromosomes of genomic material still in there. Now, how could nature do that? How could nature fuse those two chromosomes together? In any length of time, it, it wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen. That was done. So we have these two overwhelming pieces of genetic evidence that human beings are genetically engineered. We have the fusing of the second and third chromosomes in primates, and we have 4,000 plus genetic defects, which are vastly, vastly too many that we should have if we evolve in the natural course of events over the natural course of time on Earth. The people who the Sumerians say came to Earth to do the genetic engineering that we've talked about are the Anunnaki. Now, we need to get them to do some background a little bit on who the Sumerians were first. 
Right now, the Sumerians are considered to be the first great culture in the history of Earth as we understand it and accept it now. They seem to have come out of the Stone Age at around 6,000 years ago, 4,000 BC, at around 6,000 years ago. And they seem to have come out of the Stone Age and miraculously, virtually overnight, with no precedence whatever, created a very high civilization. In fact, they came up with a hundred, over a hundred, of the firsts that we consider indicative of a high culture. They had the first writing, the first language, the first cities, the first roads, the first laws, the first libraries, the first schools, the first music, the first literature. They didn't write on down the line. So they had the first of, of everything, basically, that counts. But anyway, so how do you come out of the Stone Age and produce this miraculously advanced culture. How do you come down out of the crescent, the highlands of the, the Crescent Valley, I mean, excuse me, the, the Fertile Crescent, rather, and settle into this valley, the valley of modern-day Iraq, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, which is where the Sumerian culture arose in the, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley of, of ancient times in modern-day Iraq. And build this sophisticated culture with no base under you whatsoever. It absolutely defies belief. It boggles the mind. It shouldn't be. So, what happens is, historians, though they are very aware of it, tend to sort of leave them in the past and deal with the beginnings of, of history and culture with the Egyptians and the Greeks and the later Romans. That's sort of the sequence, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans. The Sumerians are very seldom talked about, very seldom dealt with, even though we have a tremendous amount of knowledge about them because one of the things they developed first was writing, and one of the things that they stored that writing in was libraries. And their writing was done on clay tablets that were soft clay, and they used a stylus to write in what's called cuneiform, and then those would be fired in kilns which is another invention of theirs, to turn it into stone. So they're very durable. So we have over 100,000 of these tablets have been recovered, most of which deal with the minutiae of everyday life, business deals, business transactions. Uh, only about 5,000, as I understand it, dealing with the history of the culture and their, their literature and things like that. But of those 5,000 some odd tablets that we have, they tell an incredible story, the Sumerians do, of the Anunnaki, which is that there's another planet in our solar system, that gods, super beings, live on this planet, that these beings come to Earth for the specific reason of mining gold, which they need to repair their atmosphere on their planet, in the same way that we are damaging and destroying our own planet, in our rise to a high civilization. Apparently, the Anunnaki did the same thing on their planet. In their rise to a high civilization, they damaged their atmosphere, and they needed to replace it. Now, when our turn comes to repair our atmosphere, if we're not too late, the way we will almost certainly have to do it is to take gold, ironically enough, as finely as we can grind it up into pieces that are just infinitely small, so that they'll float above the atmosphere and shoot them up into space, 
and put them up there and let them disperse because gold is, is a great reflector of cosmic rays. And it's, of course, an insulator, but that's why you see gold chewing on the, on the uh, visors of astronauts and why gold is on the, in the uh, satellite, uh, in the capsule, the space capsule, to shield from cosmic rays. So uh, that's what the Anunnaki said they had to do now. It's, it's amazing to me that here are the Sumerians writing 4,000 years ago saying these things that we are only just now beginning to realize ourselves we're going to have to do one day. So, um, for, for, for whatever it's worth, they say we came, the Sumerians say that the Anunnaki said they came to Earth to get the gold, and they did that. <laughs> so, they were here, they came around 400,000 years ago, and they, the Anunnaki came to Earth around 400,000 years ago, they say. And they lived here for quite some time, just simply panning gold out of the rivers by, you know, you just, you, you put uh, trays in the river and the water washes over and the gold deposits out. It's called placer mining. And placer mining is the way we mine today when we can. It's the easiest way to do it. But over time, everything taps out. So when the Tigris-Euphrates Valley tapped out, they had to move elsewhere. And so they, by then, because they were a flying civilization, they had found the mother load in southern Africa. To this day, the mother load of gold on Earth is South Africa. So they divided themselves up. They left half of themselves, and there were only about 600 of them at maximum because they had to shuttle in from their planet, Nimbaru. And so their, their 600 they divided up. Some stayed in the home base, the original home base, the Eden, and the other group moved down to the underworld, the lower world, which was southern Africa, to do the mining. And they didn't like to mine. It was hard work. It wasn't like just putting trays in water and c collecting the gold out every two, three weeks. They had to dig it out. They didn't like doing it. So they revolted. And they said, the Anunnaki did, to their leaders, we don't want to do this anymore. So the leaders said, all right, we'll make you a slave. We'll make you a servant. And that's the reason, the impetus, according again to the Sumerian writings, for the creation of human beings. To me, this makes perfect sense. If I was a superior being from another planet and I came, if I was a superior being from another planet and I came to Earth or you know anywhere, and I suddenly found myself having to do extremely difficult work. And, and there was another being that can be somehow genetically manipulated to turn into a slave and a servant. I would do it. And I think that they did. And I think it matches the genetic evidence that we have of, of what happened to us. I think the reasoning is logical. It makes sense. It may not be true. It could turn out to not be true. But why would the Sumerians leave anything even hinting at these things? Where would they get that kind of, you, you couldn't have that creativity at that period of time because space travel wouldn't even be an option to them. They wouldn't even think of it. Flying, um, maybe not even gold mining. I mean, these are people that are just scratching for a living, supposedly, and then suddenly they're developing this culture and they're, they're you know, being gold and do all it. It doesn't make sense. So I, I in the absence of any evidence, that's compelling to the contrary. 
I consider the, Sumer the Sumerian tablets to be extremely compelling. But because it so challenges the standard accepted theories of human origins, the Darwinian theory, when scholars deal so would the Sumerians leave anything even hinting at being somehow genetically manipulated to turn into a slave? And sort of, I would do it. And I think and I suddenly found myself having to do extremely difficult work. And they said, they ought not to get to their leaders. We don't want to do this anymore. So the leader said, all right, we'll make you a slave. We'll make you a servant. And that's the reason. The impetus, according again to the Sumerian writings, for the creation of... human beings. To me, this makes perfect sense. If I was uh, a superior being from another planet, I came. If I was a superior being from another planet and I came to Earth or you know, anywhere, and I suddenly found myself having to do when scholars deal with that information, they simply ignore it. They just put it off into what they call the myth pile. They just say, that has to be myth because it can't be true. If it can't be true, there's myth and there's truth. A truth got to be myth. And so it's just simply discarded information. And that's where Zechariah as a slave race. I'm going into that myth pile and looking at it and treating it. Huh? What? Okay.
is real and formulating a whole scenario that explains, I think, in, in much more accurate terms, for whatever degree they might be wrong, they are infinitely more accurate and factual than the, is Bible. the Darwinian theory of our evolution. That's absolute garbage. That is just total junk and will be, will be recognized as such in the not-too-distant future as we keep opening up our genes and, and it begins to, you know, face us more and more that we are, you know, we're created, then we're going to start looking for who, who would have created us. And the answer's been sitting there all along for 4,000 years. It's just that the, the establishment doesn't want to look at the truth right now. But, you know, it's my job and the job of people like me to get this word out. And uh, we're going to be standing on the right side when this is over, when the dust settles. I mean, I live to see it. I doubt Sitchin will live to see it. But, um, you you know, younger people might be able to see it. But there is going to be a reckoning one day, and the truth is going to come out. And this is going to be infinitely closer to the truth. It's not exactly the truth in all of its points. It's much closer to the truth than what we're taught right now, for sure. Uh, what the Sumerians say about the origins of the uh, Anunnaki is that there is another planet in our solar system the 10th planet, or the 12th planet, if you count the Earth and the Sun and the Moon as, as planets as well. But for whatever you want to call it, 10th planet, planet X, 12th planet, whatever, there is supposedly, according to the Sumerians, another planet in our solar system. Now this is pretty staggering to astronomy, but you know, that that might be true. And yet, the evidence is, is fairly strong that it, that it is, for a number of reasons. The Sumerians say that in the beginning, as our solar system was forming itself, there, and there was a planet called Tiamat, which was a large planet forming. And it was forming where uh, Bode's Law says a planet should be. Now, there is a mathematical formula of, that says in the formation of a solar system like we have, a planet should be at a certain point, at a, a basically a certain size, a certain point, certain size, out. And Bose's law fits surprisingly well with the planets that we have now, except there's supposed to be one where the asteroid belt is, and there isn't. So what happened? Why not? And, and Earth is not quite, well, if you, if you count Earth as one, it, it fits, but everything is a little bit off. And then you've got that missing one. What the Sumerian said is where the asteroid belt is, Tiamat was growing, and it was growing at about the right size in the right place. So the natural course of events was occurring at around 4 billion years ago. But a straight planet, they say, was sucked into our solar system. Now, straight planets are possible. We, we found that out now, so this is nothing that's incredible. Straight planet came within striking range of our solar system and was captured 
by the gravitational pull of first the outer planets and then the sun, and, and it became a stable, permanent member of our solar system. But our regular planets move in counterclockwise circles, roughly. This planet was moving clockwise, and so it's moving against the grain of the flow of the other planets. And, coincidentally, it's moving on the plane of the ecliptic. It could have come in north to south, or, you know, could have come in at a number of angles, but it just so happened that it came in on the plane of the ecliptic so that those planets could affect it, so that the sun apparently could affect it and pull it in and capture it. On its second pass around, it hit Tiamat. There was a collision between Tiamat and Nibiru. Nibiru being an older planet somewhat, but still viscous, still able through the pulling of the gravity to, to have moons pulled out of its body, so it was still viscous. But so was Tiamat. It had more moons pulled out of its body. So we have to assume that that Nibiru was perhaps maybe a half a billion years older, we're just estimating, older, firmer, denser, but still liquidy, still flexible. So there's a collision. Nibiru basically holds together in that collision, but Tiamat does not. Tiamat is shattered into a half of itself. Half of Tiamat is blown away, explosion, poof. And it goes That's the asteroid belt. Two kinds. The outer shell, the lighter part of the surface of the cooling planet, is the part. Um, wait, hold on. Clip uh, is the direction and that basically holds together and years older we're just estimating older firmer denser but still liquidy still flexible so there's a collision Nimbaru basically holds together and that collision but Tiamat does not Tiamat so there's a collision Nimbaru basically holds together in that collision, but Tiamat does not. Tiamat is shattered into a half of itself. Half of Tiamat is blown away, explosion, poof, and it goes out in pieces. Two kinds. The outer shell, the lighter part of the surface of the cooling planet, is the granites and the water. So they go out. And just go in all different directions because they're lighter. The inner viscous core, the magma, which And collided. And 
into stone and water. It's pulled out in a long string as as uh, Nebiru swings by. The sort of the Of, of uh, Tiamat are pulled out and strung out. Also in that collision, of course, when two ball lights. So there's a collision. Nimru basically holds together in that collision, but Tiamat does not. Tiamat is shattered into a half of itself. Half of Tiamat is blown away, explosion, poof. And it goes out in pieces, two kinds, the outer shell, the lighter part of the surface of the cooling planet is the granites and the water. So they go out and just go in all different directions because they're lighter. The inner viscous core, the magma, which is sticky and not hardened into, into stone and water, is pulled out in a long string as, as uh, Nebiru swings by, the sort of the guts of, of uh, Tiamat are pulled out and strung out. Also in that collision, of course, when two ball lights. So there's a collision. Nebiru basically holds together in that collision, but Tiamat does not. Tiamat is shattered into a half of itself. Half of Tiamat is blown away, explosion, poof, and it goes out in pieces. Two kinds, the outer shell, the lighter part of the surface of the cooling planet is the granites and the water. So they go out and just go in all different directions because they're lighter. The inner viscous core, the magma, which is of science, and letters may be regarded as a great triumph of human reason. The name cuneiform is most appropriate for each character or This is Sumerian Civilization and Anunnaki Literature Podcast Cosmogony and the Birth of the Gods, Sumerian Origins. Side is composed of a wedge or combination of wedges. It is written as most Oriental languages from left to right. The cuneiform script was first noticed by a European at such a relatively early period as the year A.D. 1470, when Josephat Barbaro, a Venetian traveler, observed it cut on the platform of Rachman in Persia. Another Italian, Pietro della Valle, passing that way in 1621, copied a few of the signs, which he sent back to Italy, and Sir John Chardon accurately reproduced an inscription found at Persepolis in 1711. It was obvious that three separate languages were written in the script, and these have since been found to be Persian, Babylonian, and Susan. In 1765, Nibor visited Persepolis, and in less than a month copied all the texts there, which were then ready for decipherment. Returning to Denmark, he occupied himself with studying what he had set down at Persepolis, and divided the smaller inscriptions into three classes, which he described as classes 1, 2, and 3, instead of into three languages. Discovering that class one embraced only 42 signs, he set these in order, and but little subsequent addition has had to be made to them. 
deciding that the language of the signs was written in alphabetic characters, he found himself obliged to call a halt. But two other scholars were more fortunate than he. Tyson hit upon a certain diagonal sign, as that employed to separate words, and correctly identified the alphabetic signs for A, D, U, and S. Hunter of Copenhagen was more careful to verify his historical data than Tyson had been, and was able to identify distinctly the authors of the inscriptions before him. He too independently identified the oblique wedges as a separative of words, and hit upon the significance of a sign for the letter B. But after these achievements, it seemed as if little more could be done. It must be remembered that up to this time, no such assistance was vouchsafed the searchers, as in the case of the Egyptian hieroglyphs, where a Greek inscription had been found side by side with an Egyptian one. podcast. With each episode in this podcast series, we look closely at the peculiar Mesopotamia empires, their high strangeness, out of this world history, mythology, and religion, how each specific civilization and dynasty fell from grace, how they came to be in the first place, and how after a glorious epic, they ended in flames. This week, Stephen discusses topics on the origins of the Sumerians, ancient writing, and delving into the fascinating Anunnaki. Grotefend. But a man of the greatest natural ingenuity was resolved to combat the difficulty presented by the cuneiform script. George Grotefend took up the task in the early years of the 19th century beginning with the assumption that the inscriptions represented three languages, and that one of these was ancient Persian. He took two of the inscriptions which he understood to be Persian, and placing them side by side, found that certain signs were of frequent recurrence. This indicated to him the possibility that their contents were similar. A certain word appeared very frequently in the inscriptions, but it seemed to have two forms, a longer and a shorter. And this Gretefend, adopting a suggestion of Hunter's, took to mean king in the short form and kings in the longer. The juxtaposition of the two signs thus being taken to signify king of kings. In both the inscriptions studied by Gretefend, he found that his expression king of kings was followed by the same word, which he took to mean great. But there were no definite facts to support these hypotheses. Turning to certain Sasanian inscriptions, which had recently been deciphered, he found that the expression, great king, king of kings, inevitably occurred, and this strengthened his opinion that it was present in the inscriptions he studied. If this was so, thought he, the two texts under this observation must have been set up by two different kings, for the names were not the same at the beginning. Moreover, the name with which text number one began to appear in the third line of text number two, following the word, supposed to be king, and another which meant son. Grotefend thus concluded that in the two inscriptions he had the names of a triad of rulers, son, father, and grandfather, applying to the list of the Achaemenid dynasty in the attempt to find three names which would suit the conditions. 
he selected those of Xerxes, Darius, and Hystaspius. Supposing the name at the beginning of the inscription one to be Darius, he thus considered himself to be justified in translating text one as Darius, great king, king of kings, son of Hystaspius, and text two as Xerxes, great king, king of kings, son of Darius. Considering that the Persian spelling of Darius would be D-A-R-H-E-U-S-H, -E he applied the letters of that name to the letters of the cuneiform script. Subsequent investigation has shown that the name should have been read Daryavish, but Gredofen at least succeeded in discovering the letters for D, A, R, and S, H. Rawlinson At this juncture, a certain Major Henry Rawlinson, a servant of the East Indian Company, with a good knowledge of Persian, went to Persia for the purpose of assisting to organize the native army there. He was far away from books, and when he began to copy certain cuneiform texts, it was because of his deep personal interest. He was quite unaware of the strenuous toil which had been lavished upon them in Europe, and worked quite independently of all assistance. The strange thing is that he labored almost on the same line as Gredofin had done. He saw almost at once that he had three languages to deal with, and being a man of great natural gifts, he soon grouped the signs in a correct manner. Strangely enough, he applied the very same names, those of Hystaspius, Darius, and Xerxes, to the text as Gredofin had done, and found them answered in the same manner. During his attention to the inscription of Darius at Behistin, high up in the face of the living wall of rock there, Rawlinson succeeded in copying part of it at great personal risk. In 1838, he forwarded his translation of the first two paragraphs of the Persian text, containing the genealogy of Darius, to the Royal Asiatic Society of London. The feat made a tremendous sensation, and he was supplied with all the principal work on the subject, and much correspondence from European scholars. He was, however, patience personified, and would not publish a work that he had written on the subject, because he thought it better to wait until he had verified his conclusions, and perhaps made fresh discoveries. In 1840, he was dispatched to Afghanistan on a political mission, and did not return to Baghdad for three years. And it was not until 1846 that he published a series of memoirs in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society, in which he gave to the world a translation of the Persian text at Behistun. It was a marvelous achievement, for unlike those who had been laboring on the subject in Europe, he was ignorant of the language allied to Persian, yet he had surpassed all other scholars in his results. But the deciphering of the second and third language had yet to be attacked. In 1844, Guard, working on the lines of Gredofen, attacked the second language. He selected the names of Darius, Hystaspius, and Xerxes, and compared them with their equivalents in the Persian texts. By this means, he discovered a number of signs, and by their aid, attempted to spell out the syllables or words. Judging the writing to be partly alphabetic and partly syllabic, he gave the name medium to the language. Morris, who had Rawlinson's copy of the second transcription of the Behestin text to work upon, deciphered nearly all of it. Shortly after this, the language was named Susian. The deciphering of the third of the three languages, found at Persepolis, was attacked by Lowenstern, and by the Reverend Edward Hinks, an Irish clergyman. This language was purely Assyrian. Hinks was fearful of making blunders, and whilst he was engaged in assuring himself that every step he took was not a false one, Long Pierre published in 1847 a translation of the entire text. He was only able to read it by analogy with other texts. He could not prove the forms of Assyrian words themselves.
but Rawlinson once more came to the aid of the study, and it was shown that a large number of signs were ideographic. This paved the way for a band of others who, by their united efforts, succeeded in unraveling the complicated script. Origin of Cuneiform This peculiar system of writing originated in Assyria, its inventors being the Sumerian, or non-Semitic people, who inhabited that country before its settlement by the Babylonians. It was developed from picture writing, and indeed, some of the more highly significant of the pictorial signs can still be faintly traced in their cuneiform equivalents. This early picture writing was inscribed on stone, but eventually, soft clay was adopted as a medium for the script, and it was found that straight lines impressed upon this medium tended to be the shape of a wedge. The picture, therefore, lost their original character and came to be mere conventional groups of wedges. The plural was represented by doubling the sign, and a term might be intensified by the addition of a certain stroke. Thus, the sign for house, with four small strokes were added to it, would mean great house, and so forth. The script was badly suited to the Assyrian language, as it had not been originally designed for a Semitic tongue. It consists of simple syllables made up of a vowel by itself, or a vowel and a consonant. Ideograms, or signs, which express entire words and close syllables, such as bit or bow. Again, many of the signs have been more than one syllabic value, and they may be used as ideograms as well as phonetically. And in the Egyptian script, determinatives are employed to indicate the class to which the word belongs. Thus, a certain sign is placed before the names of persons another before territorial names, and a third before the names of gods and sacred beings. The date of the epoch in which this writing first began to be used was probably about 4,500 BC, and it persisted until the first century BC. The Assyrians employed it from about 1,500 BC until about the beginning of the sixth century BC. This ancient form of writing was thus used first by the Sumerians, then by their Babylonian and Assyrian conquerors then by those Persians who finally overthrew the Babylonian and Assyrian Empire. The Sacred Literature of Babylonia The literature which this particular and individual script has brought down to us is chiefly religious, magical, epical, and legendary. The last three categories are dealt with elsewhere, so that it only falls here to consider the first class, the religious writings. These are usually composed in Semitic Babylonian without any trace of Akkadian influence, and it cannot be said that they display any special natural eloquence or literary distinction. In addition to the sun god, which begins nobly enough with a high apostrophe to the golden luminary of day, we found ourselves descending gradually into an atmosphere of almost ludicrous dullness. The person praying desires the sun god to free him from the commonplace cares of family and domestic annoyances, enumerating spells against all of his relatives in order that they may not place their ban upon him. In another, written in Akkadian, the penitent addresses Gabura, Merodach, and other gods, desiring that they direct their eyes kindly upon him and that his supplication may reach them. Strangely enough, the prayer fervently pleads that its utterance may do good to the gods that it may let their hearts rest, their lives be quieted, and gladden them like a father and a mother who have begotten children. This is not so strange when we come to consider the nature of these hymns, many of which come perilously near the borderline of pure magic, that is, they closely resemble spells. We find, too, that those which invoke their older deities, such as Gibi, the fire god, 
are more magical in their trend than those addressed to the latter gods when a higher sense of religious feeling had probably been evolved. It does not seem too much to say that some of these early hymns may have served the purpose of later incantations. Hymn to Adar A fine hymn to Adar describes the rambling of the storm in the abyss, the voice of the god, the terror of the splendor of Anu in the midst of heaven. The gods, it is said, urge Adar on. He descends like the deluge. The champion of the gods swoop down upon the hostile land. Nusku, the messenger of Molil, receives Adar in the temple and addresses words of praise to him. Thy chariot is a voice of thunder. To the lifting of thy hand is the shadow turn. The spirits of the earth, the great gods, return to the winds. Many of the hymns assist us to a better understanding of the precise nature of the gods, defining that they do their duties and offices, and even occasionally describing their appearance. Thus, in a hymn to Nebu, we note that he is alluded to as the supreme messenger who binds all things together, the scribe of all that has a name, the lifter of the stylus supreme, director of the world, possessor of the reed of augury, traverser of strange lands, opener of wells, fructifier of the corn, and the god without whom the irrigated land and the canal are unwatered. It is from such texts that the mythologist is enabled to piece together the true significance of many of the deities of ancient peoples. A hymn to Nesku, in his character of fire god, is also descriptive and picturesque. He is alluded to as wise prince, the flame of heaven, he who hurls down terror, whose clothing is splendor, the forceful fire god, the exalter of the mountain peaks, and the uplifter of the torch, the enlightener of darkness. Such descriptive hymns are the most valuable assets possible in the hands of the judicious student of myth or comparative religion. The Sumerian Myth of Creation Few creation myths are more replete with interest than those which have literally sanctioned. These are few in number, as, for example, the creation story in Genesis, those to be found in Egyptian papyri, and that contained in the Popolva of the Mayan of Central America. In such an account, we can trace the creation story from the first dim conception of word-shaping to the polished and final effort to give the theological interpretation to the intentions of the creative deity. And this is perhaps more the case with the creation of myth, which had its rise among the old Akkadian population of Babylonia, than any other known to mystic science. In the account in Genesis of the framing of the world, it has been discovered that two different versions have been fused to form a single story. The creation tell of the Popol Vah is certainly a composite myth, and similar suspicion may rest upon the analogous myth of Scandinavia and Japan. But in the case of Babylonia, we may be convinced that no other influences, except those of the races who inhabited Babylonian territory, could have been brought to bear upon this ancient story, and that although critical examination has proved it to consist of materials which have been drawn from more than one source, yet these sources are not foreign and they have not undergone sophistication at the hands of any alien mythographer or interpolator. The Seven Tablets of Creation It would seem that this Babylonian cosmogony was drawn from various sources, but it appears to be contained in its final form in what are known as the Seven Tablets of Creation, brought from the library of Aserbani Paul at Nineveh and now in the British Museum. These have from time to time been supplemented by later finds but we may take it that in this record we have the final official development of Babylonian belief, due to the priests of Babylon 
After that city had become the metropolis of the empire, the primary object of the Seven Tablets was to record a terrific fight between Bell and the dragon, and the account of the creation is inserted by way of introduction. It is undoubtedly the most important find dealing with Babylonian religion that has yet to come to light. Before we advance any critical speculations respecting it, let us set forth the story which it has to tell. As in so many creation myths, we find chaotic darkness brooding over a waste of waters. Heaven and earth were not as yet, not existed, save the primeval ocean. Mamu Tiawath, from whose fertile depths came every living thing, nor were the waters distributed, as in the days of man, into sea, river, or lake, but all were confined together in one vast and bottomless abyss. Neither did God or man exist. Their names were unknown, and their destinies undetermined, the future as dark as the gloom which lay over the mighty gulf of chaos. Nothing had been designed or debated concerning it. The Birth of the Gods But there came a stirring in the darkness, and the great gods arose. First came Lamu and Lahami, and many epochs later, Ansar and Kisar, component parts of whose names signify Host of Heaven and Host of Earth. These latter names we may perhaps accept as symbolic of the spirits of heaven and of earth respectively. Many days afterward came forth their son Anu, god of the heavens. At this point it should be explained that the name Tiawath affords a parallel to the expression Thom, or Deep of the Old Testament. Practically the same word is used in Assyrian, in the form Tamtu, to signify the deep sea. The reader will recall that it was upon the face of the deep that the Spirit of God brooded, according to the first chapter of Genesis. The word and the idea which it contains are equally semantic, but strangely enough it has Akkadian origin, for the conception that the watery abyss was the source of all things originated with the worshipper of the sea god Ea at Urdu. He termed the deep Apsu, or a house of knowledge, wherein their tutelar god was supposed to have his dwelling and this word was of Akkadian descent. This aspu, or abyss, is virtue of the animistic ideas prevailing in early Akkadian times, and became personalized as a female who was regarded as the mother of A. She was known by another name as well as part of aspu, for she was also entitled Ziggurat, the heaven, or the mother that has begotten heaven and earth, and indeed she seems to have had the form or variant in which she was an earth goddess as well but it was not the existing earth or heaven that she represented in either of her forms, but the primeval abyss, out of which both of these were fashioned. At this point, the narrative exhibits numerous defects, and for a continuation of it, we must apply to Damascus, the last of the Neoplatonoists, who was born in Damascus about A.D. 480, and who is regarded by most Assyriologists as having had access to valuable written or traditional material. He was the author of a work entitled, Doubts and Solutions of the First Principles, in which he states that Anu was followed by Bel. We retain the Babylonian form of the names, rather than Damascus Greek titles, and A, the god of Urdu, from A and Duakina, he writes, was born a son called Belos, or Bel Merodach, whom the Babylonians regarded as the creator of the world. From Damascus, we can learn nothing further and the defective character of the tablet does not permit us to proceed with any degree of certainty until we arrive at the name of Nudimod, which appears to be simply a variant of the name A. 
From obscure passages, it may be generally gleamed that Tiawath and Apsu, once one, or rather originally representing the Babylonian and Akkadian forms of the deep, are now regarded as mates. Tiawath being the female, and Apsu, once female, in this case, the male. These have a son, Maumis, or Mamu, a name which at one time seems to have been given to Tiawath, so that in these changes we may be able to trace the hand of the later mythographer, who with less skill and greater levity than is to be found in most myths, found in most myths, has taken upon himself the responsibility of manufacturing three deities out of one. It may be that the scribe in question was well aware that his literal effort must square with and placate popular belief or popular prejudice, and in no era at no time has priestly ingenuity been unequal to such a task, as is well evidenced by many myths which exhibit traces of late alteration. But in dwelling for a moment on this question, it is only just to the priesthood to admit that such changes did not always emanate from them, but were the work of poets and philosophers who, for aesthetic or rational reasons, took it upon themselves to recast the myths of their race according to the dictates of a nicer taste, or the interests of reason. The Darksome Trinity These three then, Tiawath, Apsu, and Mamu, appeared to have formed a trinity, which bore no good will to the higher gods. They themselves, as deity of a primeval epoch, were doubtless regarded by the theological opinion of a later day as dark, dubious, and unsatisfactory. It is notorious that in many lands, the early elemental gods came into bad order in later times. But it may be that the Akkadian descent of this trio did not conduce to the popularity with the Babylonian people. Be that as it may, aliens and aboriginal gods have in all times been looked upon by invading and conquering race with distrust as the workers of magic and the sowers of evil, and even although a Babylonian name had been accorded one of them, it may not have been employed in a complimentary sense. Whereas the high gods regarded those of the abyss with distrust, the darker deities of chaos took up an attitude towards the divinities of light, which can only be compared to the sarcastic tone which Milton adopts against the power which thrust him into outer darkness. Apsu was the most ironical of all. There was no peace for him. He declared, so long as the newcomers dwelt on high, their ways was not his. Neither was that of Tiawath, who, if Apsu represented sarcasm defied, exhibited a fierce truculence, much more overpowering than the irony of her mate. The trio discussed how they might rid themselves of those beings who desired reign of light and happiness. And in these deliberations, Mamu, the son, was the prime mover, here again the tablet fails us somewhat, but we learn sufficient further on to assure us that Mamu's project was one of open war against the gods of heaven. In connection with this campaign, Tiawath made the most elaborate preparations, along with her companions. She labored without ceasing. From the waters of the great abyss over which she presided, she called forth the most fearful monster, who remind us strongly of those against which Horus, the Egyptian god of light, had to strive in his wars with Set. From the deep came gigantic serpents armed with stings, dripping with the most deadly poison. Dragons of vast shape, dragons of vast shape, reared their heads above the flood. Their huge jaws armed with row upon row of formidable teeth. Giant dogs of indescribable savagery, men fashioned partly like scorpions. Fishmen and countless other horrible beings were created and formed into battalions under the command of a god named Kingu, to whom Tiawath referred to as her only husband and to whom she promised the rule of heaven and of fate when once the detested gods of light are removed by his mighty arm. 
The introduction of this being as the husband of Tiawath seems to point either to a fusion of legends or to the interpolation of some passage popular in Babylonian lore. At this juncture, Apsu disappears, as does Mamu. Can it be at this point a scribe or mythographer took up the tale who did not agree with his predecessor in describing Tiawath, Apsu, and Mamu, originally one, as three separate deities? This would explain the divergence, but the point is an obscure one, and hasty conclusions on slight evidence are usually doomed to failure. To resume our narrative, Tiawath, whoever her coadjutors, was resolved to retain in her own hand the source of all living things, that great deep over which she presided. But the gods of heaven were by no means lulled into peaceful security, for they were aware of the ill which Tiawath bore them. They learned of her plot, and great was their wrath. A, the god of water, was the first to hear of it, and related it to Ansar, his father, who filled heavens with his cries of anger. Ansar betook himself to his other son, Anu, god of the sky. Speak to the great dragon, he urged him. Speak to her, my son, and her anger will be assuaged, and her wrath vanish. Duly obedient, Anu betook himself to the realm of Tiawath to reason with her. But the monster snarled at him so fiercely that in dread he turned his back upon her and departed. Next came Nudamun to her, but with no better success. At length, the gods decided that one of their number, called Miradoc, should undertake the task of combating Tiawath the Terrible. Miradoc asked that it might be written that he should be victorious, and this was granted him. He was then given rule over the entire universe and to test whether or not the greatest power had passed to him, a garment was placed in the midst of the gods, and Miradoc spoke words commanding that it should disappear. Straight away it vanished and was not. Once more spake the god, and the garment reappeared before the eyes of the dwellers in heaven. The portion of the epic which describes the newly acquired glories of Miradoc is exceedingly eloquent. We are told that none among the gods can now surpass him in power and that the place of their gathering has become his home, that they have given him the supreme sovereignty, and they even beg that to them who put their trust in him will be gracious. They pray that he may pour out the soul of the keeper of evil, and finally they place in his hands a marvelous weapon with which to cut off the life of Tiawath. Let the winds carry her blood to secret places, they exclaimed in their desire, that the waters of this fountain of wickedness should be scattered far and wide, Mighty was he to look upon when he set forth for the combat. His great bow he bore upon his back. He swung his massive club triumphantly. He set the lightning before him. He filled his body with swiftness, and he framed a great net to enclose the dragon of the sea. Then with a word, he created terrible winds and tempests, whirlwinds, storms, seven in all, for the confinding of Tiawath. The hurricane was his weapon as he rode in the chariot of destiny. His helm blazed with terror, and awful was his aspect. The steeds which were yoked to his chariot rushed rapidly towards the abyss, their mouths frothing with venomous foam, followed by all the good wishes of the gods. Miradoc fared forth that day. But at sight of the monster he halted, and with reason, for there crouched the great dragon, her scaly body still gleaming with the waters of the abyss, flame darting from her eyes and nostrils and such terrific sounds issuing from her widely open mouth as would have terrified any but the bravest of gods. Meridoc reproached Tiawath for her rebellion, and ended by challenging her to combat. Like the dragons of all time, Tiawath appears to have been versed in magic, and hurled the most potent incantation incantations against her adversary. She cast many a spell, 
But Merodach, unawed by this, threw over his great net and caused an evil wind which he had sent on before him to blow on her, so that she might not close her mouth. The tempest rushed between her jaws and held them open. It entered her body and racked her frame. Merodach swung his club on high and with a mighty blow shattered her great flank and slew her. Down he cast her corpse and stood upon it. Then he cut out her evil heart. Finally, he overthrew the host of monsters which had followed her, so that at length they trembled, turned, and fled headlong rout. These also he caught in his net and kept them in bondage. King he bound and took from him the tablets of destiny, which had been granted to him by the slain Teowath, which obviously means the god of a later generation wrenches the power of fate from an earlier hierarchy, just as one earthly dynasty may overthrow and replace another. The north wind bore Teowath's blood away to secret places, and at the sight of A, sitting high in the heavens, rejoiced exceedingly. Then Merodach took rest and nourishment, and as he rested, a plan arose in his mind. Rising, he flayed Teowath on her scaly skin and cut her asunder. We have already seen that the north wind bore her blood away, which probably symbolizes the distributions of rivers over the earth. Then did Merodach take the two parts of her vast body, and with one of them, he framed a covering for the heavens. Merodach next divided the upper from the lower waters, made dwellings for the gods, set lights in the heavens, and ordained their regular courses. As the tablet poetically puts it, he lit up the sky, establishing the upper firmament, and caused a new bell and A to inhabit it. He then founded the constellations as stations for the great gods, and insinuated the year, setting three constellations for each month, and placing his own star, Nibiru, as the chief light in the firmament. Then he caused the new moon, Nimnaru, to shine forth and give him the rulership of the night, granting him a day of rest in the middle of the month. There is another mutilation at this point, as we gather that the net of Merodach, with which he had snared Teowath, was placed in the heavens as a constellation along with his bow. The winds also appear to have been bound or tamed and placed in the several points of the compass, but the whole passage is very obscure and doubtless information of surpassing interest has been lost through the mutilation of the tablet. Among the most primitive peoples, the solar hero has at one stage of his career to encounter a grisly dragon or serpent who threatens his very existence. In many cases, this monster guards a treasure which mythologists of a generation ago almost invariably explained as that gold which is spread over the sky at our hour of sunset. The assigning of solar characteristics to all slayers of dragons and their kind was a weakness of the older school of mythology, akin to its deductions based on philological grounds. But such criticism has been directed against the solar theory, and it has been extensive, has not always been pertinent, and in many cases has been merely futile. In fact, the solar theory suffered because of the philological arguments with which it was bound up, and neither critic nor readers appeared to discriminate between these. But we should constantly bear in mind that to attempt to elucidate or explain myths by any one system, or by one hard and fast hypothesis, is futile. On the other hand, nearly all systems which have yet attempted to elucidate or disentangle the terms of myth are capable of application to certain types of myth. The dragon story is all but universal. In China, it is the monster which temporarily swallows the sun during eclipse. In Egypt, it was the great serpent, Apep, which battled with Ra and Horus, both solar heroes. In India, it is the serpent Vitra, or Ahi, who was vanished by Indra. In Australia, and some parts of North America, 
a great frog takes the place of the dragon. In the story of Beowulf, the last exploit of the hero is the slaying of a terrible fire-breathing dragon, which guards a hidden treasure hoard, and Beowulf receives a mortal wound in the encounter. In the Volsung saga, the covetous Fafnir is turned into a dragon and is slain by Seagard. These must not be confounded with the monsters which cause drought and pestilence. It is a sun-swallowing monster with which we have here to deal. The tablets here allude to the creation of man, the gods. It is stated, so admired the handiwork of Miradoc, that they desired to see him execute still further marvels. Now the gods had none to worship them or pay them homage, and Miradoc suggested to his father, A, the creation of man out of his divine blood. Here once more the tablets fail us, and we must turn to the narrative of the Chaldean writer, Barossus, as preserved by no less than three authors of the classical age. Barossus states that a certain woman, Thalatath, is Tiawath, had many strange creatures at her bidding. Belus, that is Bel Miradoc, attacked and cut her in twain, forming the earth out of one half and the heavens out of the other, and destroying all the creatures over which she ruled. Then did Miradoc decapitate himself, and as his blood flowed forth, the other gods mingled it with the earth and formed man from it. From this circumstance, mankind is rational and has a spark of the divine in it. Then did Miradoc divide the darkness, separate the heavens from the earth, and order the details of the entire universe. But those animals which he had created were not able to bear the light and died. A passage then occurs which states that the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the five planets were created. And it would seem from the reputation that there were two creations, that the first was a failure, in which Miradoc had, as it were, essayed a first attempt, perfecting the process in the second creation. Of course, it may be conjectured that Barossus may have drawn from two conflicting accounts, from that those who quote him have inserted the second passage. The Sumerian incantation which provided with a Semitic translation adds somewhat to our knowledge of this cosmogony. It states that in the beginning nothing as yet existed. None of the great cities of Babylon had yet been built. Indeed, there was no land, nothing but sea. It was until the veins of Tiawath that had been cut through that paradise and the abyss appeared to have been separated, and the gods created by Merodach. Also did he create Anunnaki, or gods of the earth, and established a wanderous city as a place in which they might dwell. Then men were formed with the aid of the goddess, Aruru, and finally vegetation, trees, and animals. Then did Merodach raise the great temples of Erich and Nippur, from this account, we see that instead of Miradoc being alluded to as the son of the gods, he is regarded as their creator. In the library of Nivea was also discovered a copy of a tablet written for the great temple of Nergal at Kutta. Nergal himself is supposed to make the statement which it contains. He tells us how the hosts of chaos and confusion came into being. At first, as in other accounts, nothingness reigned supreme. Then did the great gods create warriors with the bodies of birds, and men with the faces of ravens. He founded them a city in the ground, and Tiawath, the great dragon, did suckle them. They were fostered in the midst of the mountains, and under the care of the mistress of the gods, they greatly increased and became heroes of might. Seven kings had they, who ruled over six thousand people. The creation tablets are written in Semitic, and allude to the great circle of the gods as already fully developed, and having its full complement. Even the later deities are mentioned in them. This means that it must be assigned to a comparatively late date, but it possesses elements which goes to show 
that it is a late edition of a much earlier composition. Indeed, the fundamental elements in it appear, as has been said, to be purely Akkadian in origin, and that would throw back the date of its origin form to a very primitive period indeed. It has, as will readily be seen, a very involved cosmogony. Its characteristics show it to have been originally local, and of course Babylonian, in its secondary origin, but from time to time it was added to, so that such gods as were at a later date adopted into the Babylonian pantheon might be explained and accounted for by it. But the legend of the creation arising in the city of Babylon, the local folktale known and understood by the people, was never entirely shelved by the more consequential and published epic, which was perhaps only known and appreciated in literary and aesthetic circles, and bore the same relation to the humbler folk story that Milton's Paradise Lost bears to the medieval legends of the casting out of Satan from heaven. Although it is quite easy to distinguish influences of extreme antiquity in the Babylonian creation myth, it is clear that in the shape in which it has come down to us, it has been altered in such a manner as to make Merodach reap the entire credit of Theowat's defeat instead of Enil, or the deity who was his predecessor as a monarch of the gods. Jastro holds the entire cosmology tale has been constructed from an account of a conflict with a primeval monster and a story of a rebellion against A. And these two tales have been fused, and that the first is again divisible into three versions, originating one at Uruk and the other two at Nippur at different epochs. The first celebrates the conquest of Anu over Teowath, the second exalts Ninib as the conqueror, and the third replaces him by Enil. We thus see how it was possible for the god of a conquering or popular dynasty to have a complete myth made over to him, and how at last it was competent for the mighty Merodach of Babylon to replace an entire line of deities as the central figure of a myth which must have been popular with untold generations of the Akkadian and Babylonian people. Types of Babylonian Cosmology We must now consider the precise nature of the Babylonian cosmology and its place among other creation myths. Like the cosmological efforts of most primitive or barbarian people, it does not partake of the character of a creation myth so much as an account of an evolution from chaos and the establishment of physical laws. The primitive mind cannot grasp the idea of the creation of something out of nothing, and the Babylonians and Akkadians did not differ in this respect from other races in the same stage of development. In whatever direction we look when examining the cosmology of barbarian or semi-civilized people, we find a total inability to get behind and beyond the idea that the matter of creation lay already to the hand of the creative agency, and that, in order to shape a world, it had to but draw the material therefore from the teeming deep of the slain body of a hostile monster. Not only does the idea of creating land and water out of nothingness seem absurd to the primitive mind, but man as well must be framed from dust, mud, clay, or the blood of the creative god himself. Yet Miradoc was able to bring a garment out of nothingness, and to return it by merely speaking a word. Why, then, did the theology which admitted the possibility of such a phenomenon carry out its own conception to a logical conclusion, and own the likelihood of the gods' ability to create an entire universe in the self-same manner? Perhaps the step was too bold for an individual to take in the face of an entire theological college. And in any case, that would seem a perfectly feasible act of magic to the theologians of Babylon, when applied to a garment, might not serve for application to the making of the earth, and all that is therein. The cosmology of Babylon is therefore on a par with those of Scandinavia, China, 
and many North American Indian tribes, nor does it reach so high as an imaginative level as those of ancient Egypt, India, or the Maya of Central America, in some of which the vocal command of a god is sufficient to bring about the creation of the earth and the waters surrounding it. The making of the sun, the moon, and the other heavenly bodies is, as will be more fully shown later, of great importance in Babylon myth. The stars appear to have been attached to the firmament of the heaven as to a cloth. Across this, the sun passed daily, his function being to inspect the movements of the other heavenly bodies. The moon, likewise, had her fixed course, and certain stars were also supposed to move across the picture of the night with greater or less regularity. The heavens were guarded at either end by a great gateway, and through one of these the sun passed after the rising from the ocean, whilst in setting he quitted the heavens by the opposite portal. The terrestrial world was imagined as a great hollow structure resisting the deep. Indeed, it would seem to have been regarded as an island floating on an abyss of water. This conception of the world of earth was by no means peculiar to the Babylonians, but was shared by them with many of the nations of antiquity. As emanating from the blood of Merodach himself, man was looked upon as directly of heavenly origin. An older tradition existed to the effect that Merodach had been assisted in the creation of mankind by the goddess Aruru, who figures in the Gilgamesh epic as the creatress of Ebony, out of a piece of clay. We also find an ancient belief current that humanity owed its origin to the god A. But when Merodach displaced this god politically, he would of course take over his entire record and creative deeds as well as his powers and sovereignties. At Nippur Bel was looked up to as the originator of man, but these beliefs probably obtained in remoter times and would finally be quenched by the advance to full and unquestioned powers of the great god Merodach. Connection with the Jonah legend Some mythologists see the story of Jonah as a hidden allusion to the circumstances of Babylonian cosmology. Jonah, as we remembered, was summoned to Nevea to prophesize against it, but proceeding instead to Joppa, the scene of the later myth of Perseus and Andromeda, the ship in which he set sail was storm-tossed, and he himself advised the sailors to cast him aboard. They did so, and a great fish swallowed him. This fish, it has been claimed, is merely a marine form of Teoloth, the dragon of chaos, and the three days and nights which Jonah remained inside of it are the winter months, this does not seem very clear. Hercules, in like manner, descended into the belly of a fish and emerged again after three days, according to the Phoenicians. The name of Jonah may be compared with that of Onus or A. The love god in the Hindu Vishnu Purana thrown into the sea is swallowed by a fish, like the ring of Gyges. Was there a local sea monster at Jopa, a variant of Tiwa? And is it the same in the Jonah myth as that in the tale of Perseus? A towny fountain at Joppa was thought to derive its color from the blood of the sea monster slain by Perseus, says Pausanias. Was then the monster who lay in wait for Joppa, Tiawath, the goddess of darkness, and was Jonah, was none other than A or Ones, her mortal foe, the god of light whom she would mythologically swallow during the seer months of winter. The Beginnings of the Sumerian Religion The true beginning of a religion is that epoch in its history when it succeeds by reason of local or national circumstances and environment and by racial genius, in raising itself from those purely animistic influences which are characteristics of early faith and from which all great religions have emerged, if they have not been able entirely to free themselves 
from association, which by reason of their antiquity and the hold they achieve on the mind of humanity are particularly difficult to cast off. Thus a sense of nationality and the attainment of a high standard of righteousness assisted in shaping Jewish religion, the necessity for military efficiency, and therefore of sacrifice to the gods was molding a real, if terrible, religion in ancient Mexico when the invading Spaniards ended the hideous mask of tragedy. Insight and meditation lent an air of ethical exaltation to the Vedic religion of India, thus in a manner peculiarly its own, and according to the trend of its peculiar genius, did each race evolve a suitable religion from an original animistic basis. If we are to discover the foundations of any system or cult, however, if we are to excavate the soil religious as we would the soil archaeological in the hope of coming upon the basis of any peculiar faith, we must undertake the work in a manner as thorough as that of the antiquary who, pick in hand, delves his way to the lowest foundation of palace or temple. The earliest Babylonian religious ideas, that is, subsequent to the entrance of that people into the country, watered by the Tigris and Euphrates, were undoubtedly colored by those of the non-Semitic Sumerians, whom they found in the country. They adopted the alphabet of that race, and this affords strong presumptive evidence that the immigrant Semites, as an unlettered people, would naturally accept much, if not all, the religion of the more cultured folk whom they found in possession of the soil. There is no necessity in this place to outline the nature of animistic belief at any length. This has been done in so many other volumes of the series, and in such detail that it is sufficient to state here succinctly that animism is a condition of thought or belief in which man considers everything in the universe along with himself to be processor of soul, spirit, or at least volition. Thus, the wind, water, animals, the heavenly bodies all live, move, and have their being, and because of this fear of or admiration for them, man placates or adores them until at length he almost unconsciously exalts them into a condition of Godhead. Have we any reason to think that the ancient Semites or the Babylonia regarded the universe as peopled by gods or godlings of such a type? The proofs that they did so are not a few. Spirits and Gods Spirits swarmed in ancient Babylonia, as the reader will observe when he comes to pursue the chapter, dealing with the magical ideas of the race. And here it is important to note that the determinative or symbolic written sign for spirit is the same as that for God. Thus, the God and the spirit must in Babylonia have had a common descent. The manner in which we can distinguish, page 90, between a God and a spirit, however, is simple. Lists of the official gods are provided in the historical texts, whereas spirits and demons are not included therein. But this is not to say that no attempt has been made to systematize the belief in spirits in Babylonia. For just as the great gods of the universe were apportioned their several offices, so were the spirits allotted almost exactly similar powers. Thus, the Anunnaki were perhaps regarded as the spirits of earth and the Igigi as spirits of heaven. So, at least, are they designated in an inscription of Raminari I. The grouping evidently survived from animistic times, when perhaps the spirits which are embraced in these two classes were the only gods of the Babylonians or Sumerians, and from whose ranks some of the great gods of future times may have been evolved. In any case, they belong to a very early period in the Babylonian religion, and play no unimportant part in it almost to the end. The god Anu, 
the most ancient of the Babylonian deities, was regarded as the father of both companies, but other gods make use of their services. They do not appear to be well disposed to humanity. The Assyrian kings were wont to invoke them when they desired to inoculate a fear of their majesty and the people, and from this it may be inferred that they were objects of peculiar fear to the lower orders of the population. For the people often cling to the elder cults and the elder pathions, despite the innovations of ecclesiastical politicians, or the religious eccentricities of kings. There can, however, be no doubt as to the truly animistic character of early Babylonian religion. Thus, in the early inscriptions, one reads of the spirits of various kinds of diseases, the spirit of the south wind, the spirit of the mist, and so forth. The Batili, or sacred stones, marking the residence of a god were probably a link between the fetish and the idol, remaining even after the fully developed idol had been evolved. Was Sumerian religion Semitic in type? It has already been stated that the religion of the ancient Babylon was probably greatly influenced by those non-Semitic people, whom the Semitic Babylonians found occupying the country when they entered it. The question then arises, and it is one of high importance. How far did the religion of ancient Babylon and Assyria partake of the character of that group of religions, which has been called Semitic? The classical pronouncement upon this phase of the subject is probably that of the late professor Robertson Smith, who, in his religion of the Semites, the prepondering of opinion, Assyriologists, is to the effect that the civilization of Assyria and Babylon was not purely Semitic, and that the ancient population of these parts contained a large pre-Semitic element, whose influence is especially to be recognized in religion and in the sacred literature of the cuneiform records. If this be so, it is plain that the cuneiform material must be used with caution in our inquiry into the type of traditional religion characteristics of ancient Semites. That Babylonia is the best starting point for a comparative study of the sacred beliefs and practices of the Semitic people is an idea which has lately had some vogue, and which at first sight appears plausible on account of the great antiquity of the monumental evidence. But, in matters of this sort, ancient and primitive are not synonymous terms, and we must not look for the most primitive form of Semitic faith in a religion, where society was not primitive. In Babylonia, it would seem, society and religion alike were based on a fusion of two races, and so were not primitive, but complex. Moreover, the official system of Babylonian and Assyrian religion, as it is known to us from priestly texts and public inscriptions, bears marks of being something more than a popular traditional faith. It has been artificially molded by priestcraft and statecraft in much the same way as the official religion of Egypt. That is to say, it is in great measure an artificial combination, for imperial purposes, of elements drawn from a number of local worships. In all probability, the actual religion of the masses was always much simpler than the official system, and in later times, it would seem that, both in religion and in race, Assyria was little different from the adjacent Armenian countries. These remarks are not meant to throw doubt on the great importance of cuneiform studies for the history of Semitic religion. The monumental data are valuable for comparison with what we know of the faith and worship of other Semitic people, and peculiarly viable because in religion, as in other matters, the civilization of the Euphrates-Tigris Valley exercised a great historical influence on a large part of the Semitic field. Totemism in Babylon Religion Signs of totemism are not wanting in the Babylonian as in other religious systems. 
Many of the gods are pictured as riding upon the backs of certain animals, as almost certain indications that at one time they had themselves possessed the form of the animal they bestrode. Religious conservatism would probably not tolerate the immediate abolition of the totem shape, so this means was taken of gradually shelving it. But some gods retain animal form until comparatively late times. Thus, the sun god of Kis had the form of an eagle, and we find that Ishtar took as lovers a horse, an eagle, and a lion. Surely gods who are represented in equine, aquiline, and leonine forms. The fish form of Onus, the god of wisdom, is certainly a relic of totemism. Some of the old ideographic representations of the names of the gods are eloquent of a totemic connection. Thus the name of A, the god of the deep, is expressed by an ideograph which signifies antelope. A is spoken as the antelope of the deep, the lusty antelope, and so forth. He was also, as a water god, connected with the serpent, a universal symbol of the flowing stream. The strange god Uz, probably an Akkadian survivor, was worshipped under the form of a goat. The sun god of Nippur, Adar, was connected with the pig and was called the lord of the swine. Miradak may have been a bull god. In early astronomical literature, we find him alluded to as the bull of light. The storm god, Zu, as is seen by his myth, retained his bird-like form. Another name of the storm bird was Lugalbanda, patron god of the city of Merid, near Sipara. Like Prometheus, also once a bird god, as is proved by many analogous myths, he stole the sacred fire from heaven for the service and mental illumination of man. The Great Gods In the phase in which it becomes known to us, Babylonian religion is neither Semitic nor Akkadian, but Semitic-Akkadian. That is, the element of both religious forms are so intermingled in it that they cannot be distinguished from one another. But very little that is trustworthy can be advanced concerning this shadowy time. Each petty state, and these were numerous in early Babylonia, possessed its own tutelar deity, and he again had command over a number of lesser gods. When all those pathions were added together, as was the case in later days, they afforded the spectacle of perhaps the largest assembly of gods known to any religion. The most outstanding of these tribal divinities, as they might justly be called, were Merodach, who was worshipped at Babylon, Shamash, who was adored at Sippar, Sin, the moon god, who ruled at Ur, Anu, who held sway over Erich and Dur, A, the Onus of legend, whose city was Urdu, Bel, who ruled at Nippur or Nifur, Nergal of Ketah, and Ishtar, who was goddess of Nivea. The people of the several provinces identified their prominent gods with one another, and indeed when Assyria rose to rivalry with Babylonia, its chief divinity, Asher, was naturally identified with Merodach. In the chapter on cosmology, we have seen how Merodach gained the lordship of heaven. It has been shown that the rise of this god to power was comparatively recent. Prior to the days of the Kamurarabi, a rather different pathion from that described in later inscriptions held sway. In those more primitive days, the principal gods appear to have been Bel or Enil, Belit or Ninil, his queen, Ningursu, A, Nergal, Shamash, Sin, Anu, and other lesser divinities. There is indeed a sharp distinction between the pre- and post-Hammurabic types of religions. Attempts have been made to form a pathion before Hammurabi's day, but his exaltation of Merodach, the patron of Babylon, to the head of the Babylonian pathion was destined to destroy these. A glance at the condition of the great gods before the days of Hammurabi will assist us to understand their later developments. Bel 
Bel, or to give his earlier name, Enil, is spoken of in very early inscriptions, especially in those of Nippur, of which city he was the tutelar deity. He was described as the lord of the lower world, and much effort seems to have been made to reach a definite conception of his position and attributes. His name had also been translated, Lord of Mist. The title Bel had been given to Meridach by Tiglath Pileser I about 1200 BC, after which he was referred to as the Older Bel. The chief seat of his worship was at Nippur, where the name of his temple, Ekor, or Mountain House, came to be applied to a sanctuary all over Babylonia. He was also addressed as the Lord of the Storm and as the Great Mountain, and his consort Ninil is also alluded to as the Lady of the Mountain. Jastro rightly concludes that there are substantial reasons for assuming that his original city was on the top of some mountain, as is so generally the case of storm deities. There have been no mountains in the Euphrates Valley. However, the conclusion is warranted that Enil was the god of a people whose home was in a mountainous region and who brought their god with them when they came to the Euphrates Valley. Enil is undoubtedly of the class of Temptus deities who dwell on mountain peaks. No texts appear to have been found which alludes to him as of a red color. The flashing of the lightning through the clouds which veil the mountain summits usually generate a belief in the mind of primitive man that the god who is concealed by the screen of vapor is red in hue and quick in movement. The second tablet of a text known as the Crying Storm alludes to Enil as a storm god. Addressing him, it says, Spirit that overcomes no evil doing, spirit that has no mother, spirit that has no wife, spirit that has no sister, spirit that has no brother, that knows no abiding place, the evil slaying spirit that devastates the fold, that wrecks the stall, that sweeps away son and mother like a reed. As a huge deluge, it tears away dwellings, consumes the provisions of the home, smites mankind everywhere, and wickedly drowns the harvest of the land. Devoted temples it devastates, devoted men it afflicts. Him that clothes himself in a robe of majesty, the spirit lays low with cold. Him of wide pasture lands, with hunger it lays low. When Enil, the lord of lands, cries out at sunset, the dreadful word goes forth onto the spacious shrine, destroy. Nippur, or the city of Enil, was of Sumerian origin. So we must connect the earliest cult of Enil with the Sumerian aborigines. Many of his lesser names point to such a conclusion, but he greatly outgrew all local circumstances, and among other things, he appears to have been a god who fostered vegetation. Some authorities appear to be of opinion that, because Enil was regarded as a god of vegetation, the change was owing to his removal from a mountainous region to a more